I thought that we should respect Cambodia's neutrality. But this was the Cold War, and there was certainly a feeling that you either had to be for us or against us. You were pro-communist or you were pro-West. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction is a place for novelists and journalists to discuss new book releases and the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. You just heard a clip from Anne Oman, author of Mango Rains, who at the age of 79 has just published her first work of fiction. Today's episode is part of the Real Fiction Summer Series. I don't know about you, but I have always enjoyed reading more in the summer months. I think it has to do with memories of unstructured days on school breaks. As a child in a small Nebraska town, I loved the summer reading program at the local library. The basement of the Morton James Public Library was reserved for children's books. It was a space we called the Strawberry Patch because wild strawberries grew in a shaded spot on the ground next to the steps that descended into the children's library entrance. I loved being able to read whatever I wanted, books not linked in any way to homework. I believe those summer reading sessions contributed to my fascination with other cultures and traveling to far-flung places around the world. As travel restrictions continue this summer, I've looked for newly released books that can transport us to different countries and offer a glimpse of a different time and moment in history. These are places where the authors have lived or spent years researching. Last week, we were immersed in Paris as Alex George discussed his acclaimed new novel, The Paris Hours. Today, we're heading to 1960s Cambodia in the heady diplomatic days prior to the Vietnam War. At the end of this episode, you'll get a glimpse of next week's program with Samir Pandya's novel, Members Only, which takes place in Santa Barbara and Bombay, India. As always, all episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. You can find me there and on Facebook. I'll be back in a moment with Ann Elman. My guest today is Anne Oman, author of Mango Rains. She has written articles that have appeared in The Washington Post, National Geographic World, and many other publications. She has also written popular travel books for Washington, D.C., Virginia, and related areas. Drawing on her experience as a foreign service officer, Mango Rains has been described as a richly descriptive and poignant book and engaging, disturbing tale of love, loss, and human frailties set against cross-cultural conflicts. 
Anne Oman began her career as a foreign service officer for the now defunct U.S. Information Agency. Posted to Cambodia and Indonesia, she was expelled from both countries for political reasons. Currently, Oman divides her time between Maryland and Fernandina Beach, Florida, where she is a reporter for the Fernandina Observer. She is here today to discuss her new book, Mango Rains, her first work of fiction published at the age of 79. Anne, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Lori. I'm wonderfully happy to be here. Mangarines is a novella. It's actually the first novella to be featured on the Real Fiction program. So I look forward to talking about uh, what that is and what it means and how you uh, found a publisher. But first, I'd love to know something about what inspired you to join the Foreign Service and how your real life experience led to this book, Mango Rains, which centers on Cambodia in the early 1960s. If you graduated from college in 1962 and you were a, whim a woman, um, you didn't really have a lot of uh, career choices. If you applied to a big corporation, you were put in the typing pool, whereas your male classmate, even if he didn't have good grades, would be in the executive training program. Uh, women, I mean, there were a lot of exceptions. Um, if you were a math major, you could get a job with the nascent uh, computer industry. Uh, but if you were a history major, um, you were destined to become a, a teacher, a nurse, or a secretary, basically. And um, none of those appealed to me. And I had the travel bug. I had taken my junior year abroad in Edinburgh, the University of Edinburgh, had uh, studied some French in Geneva during the summer. And um, during our vacations in Edinburgh, which were quite long, my roommate and I used to go as far south as possible to get out of the cold mm. and we went to Egypt, we went to Morocco, and I definitely had uh, the travel book. So the Foreign Service seemed uh, perfect. And it was a competitive exam, so um, women did have a chance. I I'm not sure we had an equal chance, but we did have a chance. So I took the exam and you were uh, required to say before you took the exam, whether you were interested in um, State Department or USIA, which is which was a separate agency, which was charged with telling America's story to the world. And um, I chose USIA and was accepted and started in September of 1962 with a, a rather long training program and went out to Cambodia in March of 63. And you mentioned that you were um, studying history and that the exam was extremely competitive. This is a, um, a detail that comes through in the book that there was there was some sexism um, in uh, identifying or selecting the women who were allowed to go into foreign service. And I think there was a concern that the women would go through extensive training, which you just mentioned, and then they might get married or have children. And leave the service. Is that something that was explicitly explained to you? Maybe it wasn't put in writing, but it was definitely there. And it was really a self-fulfilling prophecy because women, when they got married, were required to resign. Men weren't required to resign. So, you know, there was definitely um, a bias and there was a bias in um, assignments. I remember a personnel officer telling me that I couldn't become a press officer because I couldn't stay up all night drinking with the correspondents. Well, I could and did, but 
that, that wasn't really the job of a press officer anyway, but people got away with things like that. Later, there was um, a, a lawsuit and women retained the right to um, keep their jobs even if they got married. But I had left the service before that. You mentioned that the U.S. Information Agency had had a purpose. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? What were foreign service officers really tasked to do in these countries? Well, we were supposed to give a U.S. spin to, to the news, to make people love us, I guess, winning the hearts and minds of the people. And um, we went about this in various ways, whether they were effective or not, I'm not sure. But um, we put out publications. Uh, we brought um, cultural acts overseas. We did foreign exchange programs, which I think probably were were successful. Uh, but we had various jobs like that. We had um, radio shows. The Voice of America, which still does exist, of course, uh, was part of USIA. And you were posted to Phnom Penh. Is that right? The capital of Cambodia? I was, um, which turned out to be a delightful place, actually. But I had passed the French test, and I was supposed to get Cambodian language training, but that was that was canceled. So I went out to um, to Cambodia, and when I got there, it was supposed to be an additional training program for junior officers at the post. But they needed a publications officer, so I was immediately the publications officer, not really knowing a whole lot about it, but <laughs> that's what I did. Well, in the story in Mango Rains, the the character. Julia's work was was political, as you've kind of described, and and promotional. She's young and fresh out of college, and there were also very glamorous parties hosted by and for the diplomatic corps. And the the character gets kind of an education in foreign affairs and um, affairs of the heart. What do you remember about the the mix of work and play, and how they kind of worked together in that environment? I think you have to put some air quotes around glamorous. People think that foreign service officers live well, and, and they do. In underdeveloped countries, they can usually afford um, domestic help, which is, which is great. Um, but for instance, in those days, you were entitled to an air-conditioned bedroom, and sometimes the air conditioner worked. But often they were waiting for parts to come from Hong Kong, which never quite arrived. Mm. But the rest of the, the house was not air-conditioned, so these glamorous parties were in very hot rooms um, packed with people, and people smoked in those days. So somebody, you'd have a servant going around with a, a lit candle to light people's cigarettes, and it mm. all added uh, to the heat and humidity. So it, it, it wasn't all that glamorous, really, but you know, I was young, and it was fun. You know, the funny thing about the point about glamour is that you do have scenes where there are these parties and uh, women dressed in silks, but and jewels, but their makeup is running and it just it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a struggle to get through the night. But um, it does have a kind of a gritty glamour. It's just a, an absolute sense of adventure. Uh, gritty glamour. I love that. And and it, it was an event. It was a great adventure for me. I, I was from New Jersey. <laughs> so when you arrived, what did they assign you? 
a, a house? Did you live by yourself or did you live with other service officers? You know, well, well, first I had an apartment in, in really what was the secretary's complex. And then this other apartment became available. It had been used as the American school for, for some time. And they were wondering what to do with it. And I said, oh, I want it because I, I wanted to be, um, I didn't want to be part of the compound. And this was a great apartment. So I, I did live by myself and I did have a, um, a servant who is described in there, becomes a character in the book. Well, this was a, an incredibly political time, um, disruptive time to be in that part of the world. The story itself takes place in 1963. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that you were there and you arrived in 1962. So you actually bore witness to what was happening in the run-up to the Vietnam War. And you address um, Cambodia's neutrality during the Vietnam War and and the U.S. role during that time. And there's this wonderful um, sentence that I remember, it's about halfway through the book on page 107. Other than the official line that the U.S. government had no foreknowledge or role in the in the coup, in, and that was referring to Vietnam. What What is your sense about neutrality, and what what did you think about it when you were there, and how do you view it now that you've you're reflecting on it as a writer? Well, I I thought that we should respect Cambodia's neutrality, but this was the Cold War, and there was certainly a feeling that um, you either had to be for us or against us. You were you were pro-communist or you were pro-West. Um, and um, that was a really a very uh, simplistic view, but we mm. were stuck with it. We called ourselves the free world. Uh, Prince Sinuk used to just laugh and, and call us in French the, the so-called free world. But but we were uh, part of the, the John Foster Dulles uh, free world legacy there. We couldn't um, we couldn't do a whole lot about it. Um, the Vietnam War was starting up. Um, Cambodia's traditional enemies, going back hundreds of thousands of hundreds of years, were Vietnam and Thailand, and they were our big allies in the area. So it was a it was sort of a no win situation. You mentioned the coup against Siam, uh, which was um, a very important happening uh, both in the book and in real life. And I I went back and looked at the, the coup has been well documented by by many um, journalists and historians. And I looked up one book that I have called The Lost Revolution by Robert uh, Chaplin, and he has a whole chapter on um, the coup and the American role in the coup. And I think it's pretty well acknowledged now that we we didn't we didn't create it, but we certainly went along with it. You mentioned Prince Sihanouk, and I I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the royal family and their role in Cambodia at that time. It was interesting, and I think you have to understand that in Asia, um, things are not always what they seem, but people go along with it. And, and if you don't go along with it, you get in big trouble. But Prince Sihanouk was the king, but then he abdicated in favor of his mother, who was totally gaga, and he became the chief of state. So this was, in effect, he was the king, but in name, he was the chief of state, and his mother, the queen, was the reigning monarch. And he was later, uh, he, he later had to leave the country and was in Beijing, Beijing for a long, long time. I, you know, that was after I had left Cambodia, so I didn't really keep track. But Prince Sihanouk moved out of the palace and moved into his little villa called Chamkarman, 
um, where he conducted the weekly volleyball games. And he also put on plays. He was quite a bon vivant. He put on plays of, of which he was always the star. He was uh, an interesting person. He was at the center of some of the socializing while you were there. Very much so. It was a very much a, a prince-centric society. The, um, all the newspaper, you know, the local newspapers all were centered along the prince. And our policy at the time was to support him because he was the best we can do. He was not a communist, even though he, he sort of flirted with them. So we were, we were supporting a strong uh, monarchy. So it was a diplomatic dance. It was a diplomatic dance. Well, one of the things that happens in your book is there, I mean, Julia is the, the leading character, but there's all of her uh, colleagues and uh, diplomats from other countries who were present in Cambodia. And you bring their backstories into the into Mango Range to give us a full picture of what it was like there. When you were developing the book, did you always know that you wanted to divide it into kind of two pieces where we would first see Julia's experience and then have a reflection? Or did this happen over the course of drafts? What can you share about the structure? First, I wrote it in the first person. I was going to make it a um, just a journal, but and I did write really what is now the first half in the first person. And then I found that that was, um, that was very limiting. So I rewrote it in, in the third person. And it wasn't very long. And so I did enter it in a novella contest, which was um, run by Miami University in Ohio. And I think I was the third runner up or something like that. But I thought it was probably too short to be commercially viable, which is the real reason I, I wrote the, the second half. But also, I was curious about what happened to these characters. I mean, I created these characters. I, I was invested in them, and I wanted to find out what happened to them. And, and some of it is based on what I knew of some people. Some people did afterwards. French-speaking officers tended to be sent to Africa, so I sent somebody to Africa. And uh, some, I heard about some people, you know, I, I didn't keep in touch as much as I should have, but I, I was in touch with a few people and I heard little things along the way. So I used part of the truth, but it, it's mainly fiction. What I found really remarkable was that you had one backstory in which a Cambodian character ended up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And <laughs> and and I'm actually I grew up in Nebraska. And so I know Lincoln, the capital quite well, and it is truly a melting pot. I think a lot of people don't realize how many citizens and how many uh, residents of that city have come from all over the world. What drew you to that particular character and have him drive through the Midwest and Nebraska. I thought that was just really on point for 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 what I know exists today. Well, um, I'm sure it was an odd point, and I've been to all of the places um, mentioned in the book, with two exceptions. I've never been to Chad, and I've never been to Nebraska. But I, I don't know whether you noticed, but in part of the the journal, I mentioned uh, Dick Diver, the character from Tender is the Night, who at the end is always going farther and farther west. Mm. So I used that, and I wanted my uh, character, Jake, whom I, I 
put in Minneapolis for no particular reason. I wanted him to go farther and farther west. So I'm glad it worked. But also it touched upon what we mentioned earlier is that the Foreign Service was a place, an opportunity for individuals with wanderlust, with curiosity about the world. It was a place for was a path for them to discover the world. And your character, Jake, came from rural Minnesota. So the the people that you met in Cambodia were from all over the country. They weren't from just the coast or elite families. They came from everywhere. You know, my foreign service class was one of the first that wasn't all WASP and all Ivy League. Um, We were uh, much more of a mixed bag, although there were no Blacks, no Latinos, no Asians, but we had a few people like me who didn't go to Ivy League colleges, and we had a few women, not not very many. You know, the old foreign service was basically WASP. USIA had people who were um, got in via other means, uh, some sort of lateral entry programs that they had. Mm. So they were a little bit less um, WASPy, perhaps. The novella as a vehicle for a book um, is something that I mentioned we have not had on the program simply because I just haven't had one pitched my way yet. And I was so delighted to see this book and read it. And for me, the whole story was fully realized. And it is a short novel, but not terribly short. What, in your opinion, what is a novella? What qualifies as a novella? And how did you, how did you find a publisher? Well, that's certainly the hard part about writing a book. But I guess, you know, for years I had um, editors telling me when it's World War III, you can write 20 inches, but this gets seven and a half. So I was always conscious of writing fairly short and concise. Um, And when I I wrote this, uh, especially the first half, I knew it wasn't uh, long enough. And then when I added the uh, second half, it it still wasn't. A a novel is supposed to be 60,000 words at least. Um, this is, um, I think, 51,000. So it, it's long for a novella. There are various definitions, which I looked up, uh, of a novella. Some of them just say a short novel. Some of them say it's supposed to take place in um, one setting rather than a lot of settings and one uh, a short time frame. But that's not universally true. Henry James's novel, Daisy Miller, for instance, takes place in several different countries. And Heart of Darkness, which is another example of a novella, yes. goes on and on, starts in London, ends in Africa. So I, I'm just sticking to the definition of a, of a short novel. And this is, this is on the long side for a novella. I found, you know, after years of trying to get agents and publishers and um, almost giving up, I found Lauren Haynes, who started something called Galaxy Galloper Press a few years ago, and they were having a novella contest. So I entered. I, I didn't win, but I was one of three novellas that they decided to publish, and they have been just great. I guess a lot of people go the self-publishing route. I resisted that. Um, my idea was if I found I had a year to live, I would um, self-publish. And I think there's there's still a stigma to it, unfortunately. Um, some of the most popular programs um, that we've run have been f- with authors who 
self-published. And I can't thank you enough, Anne, for joining the program today. It's been delightful to talk with you. It is so inspiring to hear that you have published this work of fiction on your own terms and in a story that um, has kind of been part of your life. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes and author profiles can be found on realfictionradio.com. Next week, my guest is Samir Pandya. His new novel, Members Only, is a story about belonging, prejudice, and privilege. It's a very timely story for our current times. Here's a clip from our discussion. Thanks for listening to Real Fiction. In essence, I've had these kind of blocks of my life, meaning this very kind of formative period growing up in India, uh, my kind of teen years acclimating to American life, and then in essence, a adult life that I've spent on a college campus of one kind or another, being an undergraduate, a graduate student, being a faculty member, all of these different things. And so when I sat down to write this novel, I was trying to figure out how to incorporate all of this material in there. And I think uh, a part of the way the novel is structured is that we are in this very difficult week that this character Rajput has. And yet it I move through his past life um, significantly. And I think in some ways, what I was trying to do there was incorporate these core periods from my own life and give them to Raj Butt, but then also think about the ways in which, of course, the past shapes are present, but as importantly here, the ways in which the experiences that Raj is having in his present moment allow him to revisit these flashbacks in a certain way and rethink them, to recast them, to think about his own childhood, to think about being kind of this Indian kid growing up in America when there were not, in his particular case, a ton of other Indian kids around. So I tried to kind of balance that out uh, as best that I could.